Welcome back to the Trauma Perspective. Once again, I need to add an additional uh, trigger warning to this podcast because we will be talking about um, topics of a sensitive nature. These are also topics for a mature audience. They will be uh, triggering in terms of we will be talking about and exploring sexual violence, sexual trauma, and how to heal from those. So if this is something that may be somewhat triggering for you, uh, you've been warned. And um, so please take care of yourself. All right. So the title of this episode is Sexual Liberation in Trauma Work, Healing Trauma Through Sex Positivity. And in all honesty, I think there is a big missing element to how we heal trauma. And that is that there needs to be a trauma informed sex positive framework applied to all of our public health clinical study, research in in how we look at sexual experiences over our life, but also how we can heal from sexual trauma and violence um, through using this sort of sex positive approaches to working with people under these uh, particular challenges. Um, The three elements to that. um, Oh, I'm jumping ahead of myself because Bryn is back. And uh, Bryn, can you give us your introduction. Hey, y'all. My name is Bryn Deary. Mm-hmm. I am a licensed marriage and family therapist. I'm a certified sex addiction therapist. I'm an autism spectrum disorder uh, clinical specialist. I am a certified clinical trauma professional and a master's level certified addictions professional. And Bryn is also one of the therapists uh, on our Healing Body Method team that joins us on our different retreats where we work with healing trauma. So the three areas of a sort of a sex positive approach really first, you know, we need to define what sex positivity is and what that looks like, Bryn. So can you give us just that overview of what's being sex positive, what sex positive actually is? I guess I think of sex positivity as uh, giving ourselves permission to own and enjoy our own sexuality without guilt, shame, or stigma. It's pretty basic though, right? Like it's, we, we should get it. Like we should be able to operate under under that but for some reason we have difficulty it's one of those things where it's simple but not easy and when we think about sex positivity it gives to three distinct areas that have to be accounted for in order to be trauma informed and that is sex positivity in the area of sexual well-being sexual health and sexual pleasure and we will kind of go down and define what those three distinct areas is but for the purpose of understanding the trauma informed link Um, And what trauma informed is we need to pull in the different areas um, of a general overview of what it means to be trauma, trauma informed. And what that is, is that there is given special attention to understanding that um, one, people have different cultural understandings. People have different um, diverse backgrounds, and those must be accounted for in how we approach people. We understand that people come from different places, have had different lived experiences, um, may have different abilities, um, may have be have different uh, gender associations, and all that must be taken to, into account when we are working um, with people. And then we also try to uh, treat people with a high level of dignity and respect, non-discrimination, and a Autonomy when we are working with individuals and taking that approach uh, is just a, a basic overview of what I how I would define being trauma informed um, when we are approaching um, people. How do you define trauma being trauma informed for yourself, Bryn? Um, I guess for me, the biggest part of being trauma informed is remaining completely open to the fact that trauma is subjective and people define their own traumas in their own ways. So something that might not sound like an experience that I would find traumatic um, might be for somebody else and an experience that I would find traumatic might not be for somebody else. And really um, providing a safe space for them to be able to identify the root of what's bringing their pain. Okay. And so let's just jump right into it. So what, how do we define sexual pleasure? How are we, how are we defining that for this podcast? I would call it the ability to connect to a naturally occurring primal 
you know, God-given right. I mean, this is something that, you know, this is how the species is here. This is how most of the species are still around. Um, you know, I sort of think of mayflies as being this perfect little uh, microcosm of life. You know, you zoom out far enough, life is really just birth, eating, sex, and death. So um, sexual pleasure is a huge component in the survival of our species and of most other species. So that alone, you know, sort of lends some weight and credibility to how very important sexual pleasure is and how much of our culture has been centered around it. So being able to figure out, you know, what your sexual pleasure looks like and being able to own it and reclaim it, despite um, what society might say about what it is you find sexually pleasing. I think that that definitely gives to the idea of sexual pleasure being one motivational (laughs) very much and also a consequence of the act of any type of sexual engagement or encounter. Like we wouldn't be partaking in it if there wasn't a, a motivation or consequence for partaking in the action of any of those things. Um, The next element of this that has to be covered is sexual health. And so to classify sexual health, um, I think it's very important that we understand that sexual health is going to be um, the prevention and the management of sexual violence. It's also going to be the management of any type of sexual STIs, transmitted infections. It's also the discussion and the management of HIV, sexual functions or dysfunctions, um, including desire or arousal. And also fertility needs to be under this category of how we approach sexual health um, and how we definitely in this area, um, how we include this in our perspective on a trauma-informed approach. Is there anything else I'm missing that we should add to our definition of sexual health? Um, well, I think consent is a huge piece yes. of sexual health. Yes. Um, and knowing what you want, knowing what you like, having an idea of what turns you on and not having shame around it, giving yourself permission to actually have the bodily autonomy to enjoy that which you find pleasurable. Would be healthy, like healthy in a state of mind in terms of approaching health. Like it is a healthy state of mind to do all those things that you just stated. Yes. Yes. Okay. And then our last definition that we will be defining is going to be sexual well-being. And sexual well-being, just to kind of be a summative experience, is going to be... um, the cognitive, the affect, the bodily assessment, the bodily sexual experiences, and also any type of future sexual expectations you may have uh, all together kind of sum up what your sexual well-being would be um, and how that's interpreted across the spectrum that is distinct from your actual health or your sexual pleasure. To be well sexually means that you incorporate all of those elements on this well spectrum. Is there, how would you summarize sexual well-being? I guess I would differentiate sexual well-being from sexual health by saying that sexual health I think of as being an integral piece of being a sexually active person, whereas I think you can have a healthy sexual well-being even if you're abstinent. Yes. I'm putting to I'm putting all that together. <laughs> like, like it's like I, the, the the computer received a bunch of data and there was delay how it was. I do the same thing. The, the info like bottlenecks. Because I also I think I wanted to include in good practices of sexual being also be any policies and practices we have around how we don't re-traumatize people when working with them or how, or how we don't, we, we create clear policies about confidentiality, about sexual communication. And, and all of that is also part of our, our sexual well-being in how we approach this field of sex period and, and, and trauma healing. So I think we got like somewhat of a definitions that we're going to use for these three areas of how we um, are going to define, um, Uh, sex positivity Um, but so now how is sex positivity liberating how is being sex positive going to liberate us from some of um, 
these traumas or these things that we experience in life? I'm so glad you asked, Tasha. Uh, I have a, <laughs> a quote ready from um, Melina Gaze. Uh, and she says, excuse me, they say, uh, queer and trans people have been pathologized for their gender and sexual identities. People of color have been criminalized for expressing their sexuality and literally just existing. Women throughout history have been denied access to information about their bodies and have been brutally repressed. People with disabilities have been forcibly sterilized or told that they are not and cannot be sexual. It can certainly start with individuals expressing their pleasure. The simple act of masturbating can be political. To carve out that space, to reject the cultural shame and stigma, that is subversive. We have to address those structural problems so that everyone can access their right to pleasure. So actually being able to own your right to experience sexual pleasure, um, as basic as that may sound to some people, is the goal for others. Um, and it's one of those things where depending on how you grow up, this can sound either completely foreign or absolutely terrifying and taboo to give yourself permission to be a sexual being and to ask for what it is that you want and to express your sexuality the way that it feels authentic to you. I would even also add to that by saying that even policies uh, and laws being created today that have been limiting our body autom autonomy um, are impacting our sex positivity and the way in which people are viewing sex in this positive way. I would say that people are pulling back from that, um, not just because of, of these laws, but that is definitely a part of it. Pulling back from what? When you have laws uh, placed upon you that don't allow you to make choices in your sexual health ah yeah yeah those laws wouldn't that pull you back from approaching sex in a positive way um in my thinking it would make me be very cautious or oh, make me even uh, for safety reasons completely just take it out of my existence in life absolutely i mean this is this is why it's not a coincidence you're seeing uh the sort of the the women's liberation movement come hand in hand with the advent of birth control um, if, you know, the amount of, I think it was like one in 10 women died in childbirth, like up until very recently in history. Um, I don't think it's any shock to anyone that sex can be incredibly dangerous, um, especially for people with wombs who are, who are, can bear children. I mean, that's, it's terrifying. And, you know, you don't have to be a parent to have borne witness, whether in media or real life, um, the terror of a childbirth. And that's, and that's, you know, the least of the things, that's the least of the traumas that can be associated um, with sex. But when you don't have options um, to take care of yourself, you don't have the luxury of thinking about your pleasure because you have to address the, the danger first. And obviously the more danger uh, sexuality um, presents to a person, the less pleasure they have the luxury of exploring they're from. And this isn't merely about procreative rights in the West. It's also about genital mutilation. It's about, um, you know, you know, women throughout different cultures sort of being treated as, you know, chattel or, um, you know, not having access to their own rights or their own pleasure or pleasure even being stigmatized um, where women aren't, you know, a woman experiencing sexual pleasure is inherently dirty or wrong. So how do we move into... One, how do we even move into being sex positive before we can be, even become trauma informed? Because I think that that becomes a big challenge. Right now, all of the information sometimes that's pushed out about sex, sexuality is of this maybe performative type of nature or it's from this fantasy perspective or right now it's from a political perspective and it doesn't allow for much sort of healthy positivity about sexual life, you know, and your sexual life as a human being. So how do we move towards more sex positivity so that we can then become more trauma informed? That's a great question. And I think the answer, uh, culturally where we are with sex, 
Um, you know, America is a strange place. In some ways, you know, we think, of our, <laughs> we think of ourselves as being like so free and so liberated. But a lot of Americans who've never been to other places in the world, we're incredibly repressed sexually. And, you know, a couple hundred years ago, we were, you know, the, the people that came over from Europe um, and colonized were the ones who didn't want to give up their puritanical Protestant ways when, um, you know, the church went back. So you've got people who are being persecuted for their religious beliefs because in many ways they're too strict. So America was colonized by people who were so religiously strict that Europe said you can't do this anymore. So that should give us some understanding of the puritanical underpinnings of our culture and you know the first time you go to Europe and you see a nipple on a billboard or in a fashion magazine it, it it's really eye-opening um and the fact that we have sexualized uh so many things and made things you know dirty or inappropriate that in the rest of the world it's just sort of considered this is just what bodies look like I definitely think that plays a part in how we no one really teaches sexual health at all I'm trying to think of the level of sexual health education that children get or teenagers get. It, women get like grown women who go to their doctors and ask about different things. It is almost as if you're purposely kept in the dark about your sexual health. People are really uncomfortable talking about sex. It's amazing, especially I've, I've noticed, you know, death, sex, and money. People really struggle with talking about death, sex, and money in this culture. Um, but you bring up a great point, which is that because we're sort of in that post-puritanical, you know, we're so free, but are we really? Um, you know, the earlier we get exposed to something, the more deeper rooted it becomes in our understanding of it. And uh, speaking for myself, um, and maybe people, you know, our age, again, coming of age in the 80s and 90s, um, most of the people who are middle-aged now or, you know, in their 30s and 40s now grew up with this real binary understanding of sex. And it was on, for one extreme, it was um, the sort of sex education we received. So abstinence, STI prevention, pregnancy Prevention. So we've got these authority figures who are talking about the medical side, the dangers, um, we're being warned away from it. And, you know, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. So you've got people who are just trying to keep kids from getting pregnant and getting diseases, and that's all well and good. But now you've got a generation of people who were taught that sex is wrong, sex is dirty, and, you know... It's sort of like that scene in Mean Girls where, you know, they're doing the sex education, like, don't have sex, you're, you're going to die. Here, everybody take some condoms. So, you know, abstinence education and religious education and making it all about babies and diseases, it's not particularly liberating. And it's hugely remiss because most people, I shouldn't say most people, a lot of young people in the West are having sex for pleasure, not for procreation. So the fact that pleasure is not at all mentioned in official education circles is um, hugely remiss. And then, of course, on the other side, the education is coming from porn and your friends on the playground. So you've got authority figures and teachers and quote unquote trusted professionals um, never mentioning pleasure. And then you've got the other side where it's all of the pleasure and maybe none of the safety or none of the education. And I think um, having a happy medium where uh, sex education talks both about consent and, um, you know, infection prevention and, you know, controlled pregnancy and all this other stuff, um, but also the pleasure component. And, you know, when you, I don't think... I think so many people early on, especially, um, you know, girls, we're never taught that it's supposed to feel good. We're taught that we're not supposed to do it until, you know, somebody has proven themselves worthy or we get a ring or something. It's almost like this transactional thing that we have to hold on to, the way that virginity has been um, commoditized as an asset. I mean, it's this thing where it's like, this special sacred thing we're supposed to withhold. And, and then when we, you know, give it to somebody like a gift, it's, it's a gift. It's something we are giving to somebody else. It's not something we are doing for ourselves. So just by teaching about pleasure, it will help um, 
people understand what consent is because if it doesn't feel good, um, you can stop it. You know, people talk, oh, sex is supposed to hurt. Well, um, it can be painful, but to say that it's supposed to hurt suggests that anything unpleasant that happens during a sexual experience is normal. And this is where you have a lot of young people sort of bearing experiences that they were coerced into or didn't understand what they were getting into or um, just didn't know they had a right to say, that doesn't feel good, do it this way, or that doesn't feel good, don't do it at all. You know, it was wild to me when I, me and Chris were in our um, pregnancy class or whatever, the childbirthing class or whatever, online. And so there's a, there's a bunch of couples in the room, right? You, when the nurse put the slides on with the anatomy number one, I was like, who are these people? Because there were grown people in there who still did not recognize or know basic anatomy functioning of a vagina, right? And secondly, I was like almost in utter shock that um, there were there were other pregnant couples in there of varying ages. And that was some of the first time that had ever been given information about how conception actually even took place, how the sex of the child is actually determined, who determines the sex of a child. And also that the way in which we are taught that um, conception even takes place with this race that the sperm is racing towards the egg and gets in line and jumps in and then the child takes place is 100% completely wrong and this was the first time i think these people were sitting here actually receiving like scientific like valid like this is actually how conception actually takes place the sperm doesn't know where it's going the egg sends out signals and chemicals to guide it towards itself no the egg does not accept the first sperm that arrives it could be four or five ones that arrive before it decides which one it wants to accept the healthiest one of whatever it chooses to do because it will choose to take in something and then after that the the only thing that is that's not completely was understood by the people around there is that they had a hard concept of grasping this idea that um, the the sperm has the chromosomes that will determine the sex of the child, but the egg is not necessarily just picking the sex of the child. Like, oh, I'll take this male, I'll take this female. No, the egg is picking a sperm that it deems to be the one that is the most healthy, the most compatible, whatever, right? And then at the on the end, that sperm then contains the sex of the child. So. That was just, that just was like, you, you, you could see like, you know, those little emojis where people's heads were blowing off. <laughs> that's, what, that's what I was, I was seeing sparks and anger and uh, disagreement and patriarchy just crumbling in, in real time, right? Well, that, that goes <laughs> to prove or disprove that old myth where you don't want to teach people about sex because then they'll have it. And these people are already pregnant. So exactly. It's already too exactly. Late. So a little sex education isn't going to cause pregnancy. In fact, people who don't know anything about sex are capable of getting pregnant, clearly. So I think the, the, the establishing the sex positivity allows us, uh, if anything, to approach sex in this very healthy manner so that we can, one, as therapists, process it with our uh, patients that we work with, but also um, in the way that we help them to liberate themselves enough to be able to even walk into trauma work, to to be able to take that first step into understanding that what healing is possible. Uh, It's possible for me to be positive about some of the work that I'm about to do, even if it's of a sexual nature. I almost feel like sometimes when we're working and you know, you could jump in at any time here. I almost feel like sometimes when we're working with sexual trauma in particular versus other traumas, we have to knock down the barrier of the shame of just talking about sex first. Then we have to then knock down the barrier of making sex a natural and positive thing in a person's life, right? And then after we encounter that barrier, then we have to jump the wall of, are you now ready to work on or talk about some of the sexual experiences that you will that you've had, including maybe some of the traumatic experiences that you had. Like it becomes a more in-depth process than whereas like if I can just, you know, for example, maybe approach a car crash, 
right? We can sort of conceptualize what is taking place and like where those imprints are in your body. And I can kind of go straight for what the goal is and how we, you know, get down that path of healing. Whereas the path uh, in trauma work, I have to take, you know, a bridge, a couple boats, um, got to, you know, sail very lightly towards the destination. Yeah. Trauma. Pay a toll. Exactly. (laughs) And in some ways that makes it more complicated, but in other ways it opens the door to more avenues of healing. So trauma recovery doesn't have to be linear. And this is why I love reiterating that, um, healing trauma through sexuality, it doesn't just have to be sexual trauma that's healed through sexuality. Um, A lot of people, uh, maybe they struggle with bodily autonomy and maybe they have a healthy sex life otherwise. So they could use sexuality to help take back their bodily autonomy. Or if they have great bodily autonomy and they're not comfortable with their sexuality, they can now use their bodily autonomy to help them recover sexually. So, you know, a door in is also a door out. And, you know, using different methods to heal from different things. Um, I don't know. That's that's part of what I love about uh, sex work in trauma is that um, anything having to do with the body Um, sex can be a huge piece of this. So there's, there are different approaches to like trauma informed work. Um, when we're talking about sexual health, sexual pleasure, and how to be knowledgeable about, um, those different areas. Um, I think the idea of sex work being a I, it being a concept of sex positivity is very important in how we look at that because there are um, the th- it's not therapy what is it modality no there is um, sex surrogacy ah, have yes. you seen it yes oh, there yes. we go the brain fired right yep, yep there is that idea and there's that 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 we were even taught in school that sex sur- sex surrogacy is an element of a way in which people you can work with people on sexual health, sexual healing, sexual trauma. Yes. And it is a separate licensure and a separate, I don't know if it's a certification, but it definitely is a separate licensure and registry in certain States. And it's not allowed in every state. It's only, it's only like a handful of States that that works in that, that even is allowed in. Yeah. But how do you think that that, that, idea of like a sanctioned sex work plays into the sex positivity and how you can help people heal (laughs) the same way (laughs) that you know you can hold a master class on how to fix a car but until you get your hands on an engine it's all hypothetical or you can you know study how to make dishes but unless you've actually tried it or experimented with the oven and the batter um, it all remains conceptual. So being able to uh, have a safe space and, you know, it's the same thing with therapy. Like, you know, we'll, you know, just talk to your friends. Well, talking to your friends, um, you, you might not have things that you get from your friends. So, for instance, a professional's job is to hold a safe space for the other person, whereas two equals in a sexual situation have to hold that space for each other. So if you're not even able to hold, hold a safe sexual space for yourself, you certainly won't be able to do it for another person. And that might create, you know, sort of a, a loop where now what? Now we just can't do anything with our sexuality. So a professional who's able to hold a safe space and make it about a paying client's experience as opposed to sort of a mutually uh, pleasurable experience, I think that can do a lot for somebody who is respectful and willing to pay for a hands-on education. So what... Let's what kind of what is the population? Like what are we who who are the type of people that would typically benefit from maybe sex surrogacy? Um Because oh, I definitely have had experience with people who are brain injuries, spinal cord injuries, that sort of thing, wheelchair based. Sure. Um so anyone that has 
like you said, had a, a physical injury after they've come of age sexually. So if they know their bodies, they know their sexuality, they know what their genitals like or don't like, and then there's an accident or an injury or a brain injury or some kind of change where they have to relearn their sexuality, it's another form of physical therapy. So just like someone may have to learn how to walk again, someone may learn how to enjoy sex again. Um, also people with very little experience or only negative experiences. So someone that's had a lot of physical uh, trauma that's experienced, um, you know, again, medical trauma, anyone that's had an experience where their bodies don't belong to them, or it feels like their bodies don't belong to them. Um, being in a situation where, you know, in many ways, while the professional is the one, quote unquote, in charge of creating the safe space, it's the client that's really in charge. It's sort of like, you know, the kink adage where the sub is really the one in charge, not the dom. And it's the same way where any client centered work, it, it really is the client leading the pace. So creating a safe space where the client is able to explore their particular needs, their curiosities, um, and not have to worry about the other person's safety or the other person's pleasure. So, I think it should also be noted that in these situations, these are actual professionals and there's a lot of sex education that goes on um, in sex surrogacy because when you're dealing with uh, different clients, there's different needs. And so, for example, like with individuals who are in wheelchairs, right, at least in my experience with some of my my past clients, um, there's a lot of education that has to go into just their care first and experimentation to figure out what is going to work and what's not going to work, what's going to be medically safe for them and what's not. Um, and then all the other things that can take place uh, during sexual encounters um, because of their medical needs and, and medical care, like their um, the dysreflexia, the autonomic dysreflexia that takes place. And so there is a whole level of planning and education and understanding and communication and learning in general that takes place um, in these encounters. It's a very intense type of um, uh, experience to take on um, to 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 have that to have these levels of of new understanding about yourself and to be able to then engage in. Uh, sexual pleasure and to be able to have pleasure um, from sex again because of a disability. Sure. Um, also, people who have a lot of shame for any reason. So people who have never been comfortable achieving orgasm because it's been stigmatized in their religious upbringing, um, people who struggle to get or maintain erections, people who ejaculate prematurely, um, uh, you know, Squirters. There's a lot of women that produce uh, a lot of liquid and they're humiliated. And so they're not really able to stay present or enjoy their sexuality. Um, you know, there are male surrogates as well. So anything that might keep you from having a healthy relationship with your sexuality um, and giving you the ability to be free in an encounter with somebody else, uh, knowing that a professional has sort of seen it all and their job is to make you comfortable can be a huge amount of pressure off. So I think um, it, it, jumping into the trauma-informed approaches to what sexual pleasure is, what sexual health is, um, what sexual well-being is, there's a couple key things that we have to indicate that are very important and how we approach these different topics from a trauma-informed perspective. One thing is, is that there's always a level of safety. You're, we are always talking about safety when we're talking about people and sex, right? There's also trust and transparency. There is uh, no underbelly or undercurrent. We are very straightforward, um, and you're very clear uh, in your communications and in your trust. Uh, we don't approach these three areas uh, without empowerment and without giving people a voice and giving them a choice. Um, that has to be used in all areas of trauma-informed uh, approaches to sexual health. And then we also understand that there will th these experience and experiences in a person's life will foster um, this post-traumatic healing and growth because that's what we want out of any type of healing experience. We want there to be a healing and a growth that comes from um, 
you know, any type of work that you, that we do with people, especially on a trauma level. And with all of that, there's always a support element to all of these. So we want to support sexual well-being. We want to support sexual health. We want to support sexual pleasure through knowledge, through services, and through providing other resources, because there needs to be a community. And there also needs to be that additional understanding of support, um, that, that in person centeredness that comes around helping people, um, with their individual needs um, on their sexual health. Yeah, I also think expanding the definition of sexual trauma um, here is especially important. Oh, yes. So we think of sexual trauma as, you know, being sort of your, your run-of-the-mill sexual assault, you know, rape, child trafficking type thing. But for people uh, with disabilities, sexual trauma might look like um, being rendered asexual for your entire life. Um, you know, somebody wouldn't want to have sex with this person, therefore this person doesn't have a sexuality. Um, uh, people with medical trauma who have been under medical care uh, who, are, who aren't given privacy, they're not given the opportunities to be sexual beings because they're sick and our culture deems sick people as not being sexy. You know, they might be, you know, um, you know the, the sort of waif-like Dickensian you know, lithe creature who needs to be rescued aside. Absolutely. There's no inclusion of people with disabilities who are differently abled into any type of sexual framework for sex positivity or, or trauma. There needs to be more of that. I shouldn't say there's no, but there definitely needs to be more of that. Um, right. One of my favorite quotes uh, out of Pussypedia is um, when we weaponize asexuality, it harms asexual people and disabled people. Some disabled people are asexual. Assuming we all are strips us of our bodily autonomy, of the sexual experience that we want, and of desire. So being put in any sexual category is traumatizing. And of course, we know from the LGBTQ community that being told, uh, what your sexuality should be is is dangerous, and you know we're now inviting members of the medical trauma community to step forward and claim that as well, because uh, the culture has decided for them what their sexuality is going to look like. And then, of course, there are the difficult ethical issues surrounding, um, you know, neurodiversity, cognitive impairment, and their right to consent and their right to have children. Um, being told that you are not well enough to have children, having other people make that decision for you, relying on a caregiver, and that caregiver doesn't want to take care of you and your child. Um, there are so many other forms of sexual trauma when you start looking at some of the reasons why uh, people might have their sexuality taken from them. Uh, aging as well. Um, again, the culture isn't particularly kind to aging people, and the, you know, I think we like to pretend that people over 60 don't have sex, which is absurd. People over 60 are having sex. They're having sex right up until the day they die. And um, what sexuality looks like as we age begins to change as well. But a lot of younger providers aren't asking questions about sexual health to their older patients, and that's a form of trauma as well. That is a form of trauma, and it's also a lack of un of, in of inclusion, of including people even into the sexual um, categories. So, Bryn, what? How do you approach working with people on liberation? How do you help your clients liberate themselves so that they can do their trauma work? One of my natural gifts <laughs> is uh, one being, of many. One of many <laughs> is being able to openly discuss difficult topics. So, like I said before, people have a really hard time with death, sex, and money. I love talking about death, sex, and money, um, and I think the confidence. Uh, that comes from my very genuine fascination with those elements of the human experience, um, I think it inadvertently gives people permission to speak freely about it as well. So if I'm up here like, you know, looking around and picking my nose and talking about orgasms, then you might feel <laughs> slightly less insecure talking about your orgasms and talking confidently and casually about people's right to sexuality, um, about 80-year-olds having sex, about cognitively... Um, uh, What's the word? You know, people with cognitive deficits, people with neurodiversity, being sexual beings, um, it makes people uncomfortable. And um, I don't know, I, I rather like making people uncomfortable when it's for the right reasons. So, you know, if I am, if I've got a client that falls into one of those categories, um, whether they are, and, and let me be clear about something else too. I want to talk about fat bodies. And the reason I like the word fat, even though that has been stigmatized, is because the term overweight 
suggests that there is a weight mm-hmm. that you are supposed to yes. have, and if you are over it, you are over it. Yes. I like fat colloquially for the same reason that I like skinny colloquially. It's not saying too skinny or too fat. There's just skinny bodies and fat bodies, and they can both be healthy and they can both be beautiful. But again, in this culture, um, you know, there was a little blip there where you were allowed to have a thicker body, but even that is starting to turn around today. Um, but you know, people who aren't comfortable thinking of fat bodies as being sexual bodies, they're not going to ask questions because they're uncomfortable talking about that. So, um, asking people who are disabled, who live in very fat bodies, who are over a certain age, being very upfront and confident and calm and casually asking about their sex life and assuming that they are sexual beings is liberating, is liberating in and of itself. So I think um, one of the things that I, I know one of the things that I do is I just I just like helping people do their work. Yeah. <laughs> I'm about the work. Let's get the we, we could do the work together. I'm I'm like I'm here with you to 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 take the walk. Um, and I, but I know that in that walk through liberation and into trauma, um, we t- I talked earlier about how, you know, there's always a toll to pay and a bridge to cross and, um, you know, a, 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 a swervy path to take. But Bryn, is there a more direct path? Can Is there a more a more direct way in which we can really facilitate this understanding of sex positivity and trauma work? amongst therapists amongst the 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 counseling community amongst mental health it's a tough one um you know this is going to get really deep here for a sec but i think in many ways um i don't know for lack of a better analogy i'm reminded of the clan of the cave bear books where most of the tribe can count to three and then there's a few members of the tribe that can count to five and they're looked at as like wizards um or geniuses Um, I think you have to be able to think outside the box to encourage other people to think outside the box. And that's not to say that, you know, anyone with any level of abilities can benefit um, or help others benefit. But I think people have to be comfortable with themselves before they can help other people be comfortable with themselves. And that's not to say that, you know, there's so many terrible therapists and we're so awesome. It's to say that we really live in a culture where healthy sexuality is is not... Um, it's not emphasized as being important. So naturally we're turning out a lot of professionals who, you know, aren't necessarily comfortable with sex because they've grown up in a culture where it was taboo or it wasn't comfortable or they're Mm -hmm. not comfortable talking about it. So all this to say, it's not just about, you know, not being great at your job. It's about, um, systemically, it's really hard to be good at this job when it flies in the face of everything you grew up with. So I think the best thing that we can ask other professionals to do is to be really honest with themselves about their relationships with their own sexuality and their relationships with their own bodily autonomy. And, you know, one of the most trauma-informed things I like to do is tell everyone, it doesn't matter where you are, you just have to know where you are. So if you're not comfortable talking about sexuality as a professional, great. Do yourself and your clients a favor and own that. Know that about yourself. You don't, you know, owning your right to be uncomfortable with sexuality Mm -hmm. is just as sexually liberating. You know, it's not liberating if you're forced into liberation. Um, But I think it's very liberating to say, I'm not comfortable talking about this. So let me refer you to someone who is comfortable (laughs) talking about this. And this is how therapists can protect themselves as well, because so many therapists are re-traumatized and they find themselves, you know, somehow feeling trapped in a conversation they're not comfortable having and they feel like they have to have it. And they'll come out of a session with you know, a client who's not a perpetrator, they just might be more comfortable talking about their sexuality than the therapist might. And, this, and the therapist might come away feeling, feeling victimized, um, having a re-traumatization feeling of being victimized. But of course, you know, they haven't been victimized because they've signed up for that job and they have to be accountable for it. 
But, you know, if a professional isn't comfortable doing it, that's great. Part of liberation is owning that you're not comfortable of doing with it. And, and, and you can lead by example. And how powerful to say, this isn't a conversation I'm comfortable having. You know, in a, you know, you wouldn't say it, of course, but the message is, I don't consent to having this conversation. You can lead by example. And even that can be healthy for a client to see someone who calmly, lovingly says, this isn't something I'm comfortable talking about. Let me refer you to somebody who can. And anytime we draw a confident but gentle boundary around sexuality, we are leading by example. So again, I think there's a lot of shame, especially in professionals where we feel like we're supposed to be able to talk about everything. And so we might force ourselves into talking about something we're not comfortable. You are still leading by example when you show clients, you know, this is where my comfort zone ends for my own stuff. Let me send you to somebody who can better help you. And I think even that is positive. And that's probably one of the most positive things that um, we can do for a client population or an individual that we're working with is know our lane, know what we can work with and what we can't work with. And I've kind of seen this come up a little bit um, in a couple controversies online or in TikTok or in people get sort of uh, perturbed that certain therapists don't work with certain populations of people or don't want to work with certain populations of people and they don't frame it in the they don't frame it as an expertise they sort of frame it in a different way but in all honesty that's exactly what it is like why would you want a therapist to work with you that isn't comfortable with sexuality isn't comfortable with talking to you about your sexuality Um, Why would you want a therapist who hasn't done their own work in the area of their own sexual trauma or in just in the area of their own sexual liberation? Like, I think there's something to be said for uh, really, you know, tapping into, you know, taking the time to find a therapist or understand that not every therapist is going to be able to help every person. We're all diverse. And it's okay that if you get referred out, it's also okay for you to find someone that you really connect with. And it's also really important to remember that it, it, it's likely has nothing to do with you. And this is something I think um, it's very easy to forget because we might be coming with things we've never told anybody. We might be coming with things that feel taboo and to think, oh my God, I'm so messed up that this therapist can't even work with me. Um, It generally doesn't occur to people that the therapist might be too messed up to talk about that particular subject and they may not feel um, like they are capable of giving you what you need because they are still triggered by it because therapists are people too, you know? And I think that therapists who have gone through some of the issues they're helping their clients with are an invaluable resource. Um, So to say, you know, oh, they shouldn't be therapists, I don't know how reasonable that is. They may just be in a different place in their healing journey. Not to mention, people are traumatized after becoming therapists. It's not like once you become a therapist, you've hit some sort of finish line and now you can never be traumatized again. Bad things happen to therapists as well. So someone that might have been comfortable talking about sexual liberation a year ago might have experienced a trauma to where they are not yet ready to discuss sexuality with clients because it's triggering for them now. So don't forget that therapists are people too, even after they become therapists. It's not you. That's my point. It probably isn't you. Um, And I think when you're dealing with a traumatized population, because shame is such a huge component of life through the lens of a trauma survivor... Um, most trauma survivors will assume it's them. So this is me saying it's probably not you. It it, it really probably isn't you. So I think, is is that what we want to leave uh, this conversation with? Is people understanding um, that it's probably not you if you haven't been able to necessarily connect with the right therapist yet, especially in the area of sex positivity? What else do you want to leave with? I guess I want to mention this. I think it's. I think it would be remiss not to. And this kind of goes back to what we were talking about: the difference between sexual health and sexual well-being. Um, the asexual population, I would look at them maintaining their asexuality or their version of their own sexuality in a way that feels right for them. I would call that sexual well-being, and um, basically just to say that you can have sexual well-being without identifying as a sexual person and that is your version of sexual well-being so i want to include um people who either don't have sex traditionally or don't identify as being sexual in being able to have sexual well-being 
That might be what your sexual well-being looks like. And even that still does but doesn't have anything to do with sexual health because your actual sexual health as a a living physical human being also takes on a different um, context in terms of of what that looks like. Sure. Yes. So, Brian, I think uh, maybe we should mention how we approach the attitude and the perspective of, of sex positivity on trauma retreats, because I know that people aren't going to feel comfortable, you know, coming on a retreat in general and then working on their sexual trauma. Something's very private and very vulnerable, you know, and we're in this group setting. We're in these beautiful tropical settings. But, you know, we have to approach Uh, sex positivity in a way that does make people feel comfortable and does open them up to the ideas of healing especially sharing all that you know in private and group settings because of course we're not on retreat by ourselves right and what I love about us doing this podcast while we're in the you know developmental phase of the retreats is that um you know for those of you listening, give us feedback. What what would you do an entire retreat of? What would be a component of a retreat? I would argue that if we were doing a retreat that was specifically around sexual positivity, um, you know, of course it would be trauma informed. But for a lot of people, um, they may not want to rehash the trauma. They may want to take a solution focused approach and just move towards the light instead of negotiating the dark. Um, or people might not identify as having sexual trauma necessarily. So, for instance, um, sex workers. Sex, sex workers who carry shame or have been ostracized from their family might be able to find healing from that trauma. So, you know, it's not necessarily a sexual trauma in the traditional sense of the word. It might be a sexuality trauma where people haven't been allowed. So, in the sense, you know, obviously, of course, there are so many sexual trauma survivors that it's not to say that we probably wouldn't have some anyway. But if this is a retreat specifically for sexual positivity, I would invite people who um, maybe have a disability, maybe who've had medical trauma and uh, maybe people who don't have um, bodies that society deems beautiful or sexual worthy. Um, Anyone that needs to reclaim their right to be sexual beings or um, shed some of the shame that comes with their version of sexual liberation, I think would be appropriate for this. So give us some feedback. Um, Send us an email. Uh, Bryn, you want to drop your email again? Yeah. um, My email is pretty simple. It's just my first name, last name at gmail.com. So Brindeary at gmail.com. No dots or dashes. B-R-Y-N-N-E-D-E-A-R-I-E at gmail.com. And you can also respond at the healing body method uh, at gmail.com because we would be interested in your feedback. We are actively putting together different retreats. We do have an upcoming treat in 2024 in July in Costa Rica, but we are putting together additional retreats and we'd like to make something specific for what you feel um, would benefit you. So, all right. So um, I think that, you know, for this particular episode, I think, that pretty much wraps things up. Uh, if you'd like to leave us a review, please do. We like uh, to read the reviews. We don't care if they're good or bad. We're going to read them either way and take that information and just create a better podcast. And with that, uh, thank you for joining us on the Trauma Perspective. <laughs>